Hello, everyone. Happy New Year. Before we get started with this first episode of the new year, I just wanted to say a huge thank you to everyone who took part in Spike's Christmas and New Year donation drive. It really is no exaggeration to say that without the generosity of listeners and readers like yourself, Spike wouldn't be able to do what we do. All of our content, our podcasts, videos, articles and essays is free and it's your donations that allow us to keep it that way. So if you've already made a donation, thank you so much. If you haven't yet made a donation and you'd like to, why not make one today? It's really easy. Just go to spiked-online.com slash donate. One-off donations are brilliant, but setting up a regular donation is even better. It really helps us to plan for the future and for bigger and better things. So Go to spiked-online.com slash donate to make your donation today. A lot of these women on the left talk for working class women yeah. all the time, but not to them. Mm. I just think that working class women and vulnerable women are not a prop to make an argument against people you don't like very much. Mm. I think they are people to consider most centrally in most everything we do we get women who are survivors of rape who then can't access violence against women or rape crisis centers because they can't be sure that it's staffed by women so if those women aren't the ones that i'm holding central to everything that i do then i think that what i'm doing is is not particularly important Hello and welcome to The Brendan O'Neill Show with me, Brendan O'Neill. This is a podcast in which an esteemed guest joins me to talk about the big ideas, the bad ideas, the problems and the controversies of life in the early 21st century. In this episode, I am delighted to be joined by Kelly J. Keen Minchel. Kelly J. also goes by the name Posey Parker. She is one of the most outspoken and consistent defenders of women's rights and critics of the transgender movement. Kelly J. is is the founder of Standing for Women, a campaign group that defends women's right to use the language they want to talk about their rights and their spaces. She is a regular on TV and radio, and she has organized numerous public gatherings to make the case for the right of women to associate as they see fit. She has been banned from social media sites and has been interviewed by the police, all because she has dared to push back against the trans lobby. Kelly J is also responsible for turning the dictionary definition of a woman, adult, human, female, into one of the rallying cries of our time. So, Kelly J, every time I've seen you on the media, on TV or radio, over the past few days, you've been up against a man ex earnestly explaining to you what a woman really is. And I was watching these clips and thinking to myself, I wonder if Kelly J finds it surreal that she is in a situation in 2022, decades after the various feminist movements, having blokes tell her that she doesn't understand what a woman is? Or, or are you now just used to it and see it as part and parcel of life in a potentially misogynistic decade? How do you feel when you're faced with these men telling you that, that you're wrong about biology and wrong about women? I wait for them just to hang themselves, quite frankly, <laughs> uh, and make themselves look really silly. I've had a couple of really partridge kind of moments where I'm, where I'm listening to a man sort of almost finish off 
uh, I watched somebody today and they, they kept finishing off their female colleagues sentence with, yes, but it is rather extreme. So I, I think it, it just strikes me as deeply misogynist. And I hate using that word because I think it's very overused, but it's so apt in so many situations at the moment that these men genuinely, I feel, see women as lesser men um, because we don't have a penis. And that's kind of the be all and end all of woman is that we're just not men. So it's, um, it's really interesting how over it's really become. So let's talk about, so you mentioned there that they say, well, she's a bit of a, she's a bit of an extremist and so on. Let's talk about mm. your extremism. So your extremism, explain to us what your, the content of your extremist ideology is. Is it really just the fact that you think biological sex is real and people with penises are men, not women? This is basically what we're talking about. I think that's it. I think the <laughs> extremist label comes in because I will also say it without mm. flinching. And I think we're all supposed to now tiptoe around this highly oppressed uh, minority, which it just the minority in number, but not in power. And I always understood that when you talk about minority, you're talking about people who have no power. And I would say if our laws and our institutions are using their language, I'd say they're quite powerful. So let's dig down into this movement and the impact that it's having and the reasons why you have launched a, a, a very solid campaign against the excesses of this movement over the past few years and uh, what, what that story is all about. So obviously we're talking about the ideology of transgenderism, which is how I refer to it. Maybe you refer to it in a different way or the cult of gender fluidity is another term that people use. We're talking about the notion that you can change sex, that a man who identifies as a woman should be treated as a woman, should be accorded the same rights as a woman to enter certain spaces, to enter certain sports, to stand for women's positions in politics and in, in their careers. So this ideology of transgenderism, let, let's go back to the beginning. When, were, when was the first time that you remember thinking to yourself, there's something off about this. This doesn't really, this isn't working for me and I need to do something about it. Do you remember that moment where you first thought, I need to take a stand against this notion that sex is a easily changeable phenomenon and a man can become a woman? Yeah, so it was 2015 and uh, David Cameron had just been elected and I think loads of people like myself on the left were really convinced that there's no way that after the shambles of the coalition that anybody would vote conservative. And I guess I was in some sort of bizarre bubble where I had no idea really what was going on in the country. And so I joined this group called Awesome Lefty Women. And it was in that group that I began to see that actually these men weren't, A, they weren't transsexuals. B, that they would invade women's space, like this particular group was for women, and then there'd be all these uh, men in soft focus, and I'm talking like men, men, uh, that, that look like they've only just ever considered the notion at 65 that they might be women. And all women were talking about politics, and these men would sort of introduce numerous photos of themselves in these soft focus photo shoots. And... 
I remember saying to one of them who told this quite sexist kind of Bernard Manning type joke that ended up, the punchline was some sort of violence against women. And um, so I just said, oh, are you sure you identify as a woman? And then I just got really roundly attacked. Like, it was so vicious. It wasn't just him. He started private messaging me. Uh, but it was also women. that, And you, weren't, you just weren't allowed to question it at all. So I think it was at that point that I realized, hang on a minute, if I'm not allowed to talk about this, then I think that's something that we really should be talking about. And so it gathered pace from there. And you ended up founding Standing for Women and doing various other campaign and writing activities and of course creating the slogan adult human female which is actually (laughs) you just got from the dictionary so that's very straightforward um a woman is an adult human female which has become arguably the most the best known slogan of the women who are pushing back against this contemporary form of misogyny as you started doing that kind of work did you notice more and more people drifting away from you or looking at you and thinking she's becoming an extremist she's becoming a bigot she's she's losing the plot did did that happen quite quickly when you decided to take up this issue i was in a really different stage of my life uh sort of 2015 2016 so i was no longer really hanging around the sort of school gates of primary schools which is when those people around you are people that you spend most of your time with. And I was a stay-at-home mother. And I'd also moved from a big city. Quite fortuitously, I moved out of Bristol in 2015. I think, had I been doing this in Bristol, in the very woke, champagne socialist part of Bristol that I lived, I think it would have been a very different story. I don't think I really noticed people walking away from me, but I was very, I had a really small life. Um, of just very close friends, so I don't, I don't actually know anybody who genuinely in my circle who thinks that women have penises. I just don't know anyone. In activist circles, there was definitely a split between those women that called themselves socialist feminists, who were very wedded to the men on the left, uh, and still are, and and take their message about everywhere, and those of us that really felt no loyalty whatsoever to any man who said that that men could be women. Some listeners, and more importantly, the vast bulk of ordinary people in this country will, as you know, will find it completely bizarre that it has become hyper-controversial to say women don't have penises. And you have created stickers which say that, and people have put them on lampposts and various other places, and they're treated as hate speech it's now treated as hate speech to say women don't have penises or a woman is an adult human female. And you mentioned earlier on the difference between trans people being a minority, but actually having an extraordinary amount of power in political cultural circles to influence the language we use, uh, the ideas people hold and so on. Why do you think there is this willingness amongst the political establishment and huge sections of the left to go along with such an eccentric ideology that most people would find crazy, uh, inexplicable? How how do you explain that kind of uh, disparity? I think what's happened is through courtesy and uh, supposed kindness, people have stopped using words like woman and man. And so 
what's happened is when you use those words, it becomes an extreme position. It, it, it's quite jarring. So I was recently on a, a Zoom call and there was a particular woman who's an activist who I would say is relatively hardcore. Um, her and I don't necessarily have the same outlook, but I'd say that she definitely prides herself in working for women. And she she said female-bodied people instead of the word woman. <laughs> and I thought that can only be because she thinks there's something kind or courteous yeah. about saying that. And I just have no... I am not giving up a single word that refers to women. I'm not I'm not sharing it and I'm not going to stop using it at all. It just doesn't it's nothing that I'm doesn't even come across my radar as a compromise I'm willing to make. This is of course the key reason that you are often referred to as hardcore. You are seen as in many ways the most hardcore person in this movement. You and uh the wonderful Venice Allen of course and a few others. Um, Julia Long too. You're seen as being particularly hardcore because you don't go along with the niceties. And this is a, this is an issue on which you and I have had disagreement in the past. And I remember saying to you, and you actually successfully changed my mind on this. And I remember saying to you, what's wrong with a bit of courtesy? What's wrong with, um, using the pronouns that people would like us to use and so on? And you made the point that, as soon as you do that, you buy into the notion that reality should be molded around an individual's personal feelings as if um, a man becomes she simply by declaring that that's how he feels. So uh, I was very impressed upon by that argument. But can you just explain to me why you in particular think it's so important not to, as you've just said there, not to abandon any of the language of womankind, not to use phrases like female-bodied people, not to use female pronouns for people who are men rather than you know male-bodied people. Why do you think that is so important? And why do you think that has become a source of friction, even amongst women who share some of your concerns about the ideology of trans? It's really important when you... Um use female language for men, you obscure the fact that they're men and everything becomes more difficult just from that very start. So if you say that woman or that trans woman is not allowed in those women's toilets, that just sounds bizarre. Like because they've become, by that language, they've become a subset of women and clearly they're not. They're a subset of men. Mm. Well they're just men. Mm. Um so when you use that language, I think it becomes much more difficult to see men in a given situation. Also, it really does lead to very serious places where you can't use uh, language, where you really gaslight even victims of male violence in courtrooms and in prisons and so on. And I'm sure Spike just covered the fact that women in prison, if they misgender the rapist uh, in a shower next to them, who's flashing repeatedly and is sexually assaulting these women, if those women use he for that person, they can get days added to their sentence. So it's that's really important. So there's a thin end of the wedge argument there. When it comes to women's language being diluted and so saying birthing person instead of woman, we are really at risk of losing 
any rights that we have around maternity as being a, a right of women. And then it becomes like a loose right. And then I think there's a case, it might have been in this country or in America where a woman tried to take her employer to court or to, to a tribunal regarding breastfeeding. And they, and they said, she said it was sex discrimination. And they successfully argued that because some men breastfeed, it's no longer sex discrimination. And so she lost the case. She lost her place at which she could effectively argue about her female body. Um, and that being something that was a, a point of discrimination with, um, at work. And she lost the case. So in both instances, not using accurate language is, is just, it just decimates our rights. I mentioned there that this is a source of tension between people you know, people you associate with, some of the campaigners on your side. And I really wanted to ask you about this because one thing I've noticed happening recently, and maybe it's not that recent, but I've certainly noticed, noticed it, is that there does seem to be a bit of a split emerging. And it's not necessarily a people's front of Judea situation just yet, but there does seem to be a split or a tension emerging between, I call them trans-skeptical feminists, and I, I know you don't like that phrase, but that's that's the one I use. <laughs> there does seem to be a bit of a tension emerging within this group, within this movement, between not only on the issue of misgendering or using the correct terminology as we would see it, but also on the idea that some people, i.e. you and a few others, are very extreme. The only issue you care about is the trans issue, whereas on the other side, there are these apparently much more clued up feminists who have a broader rounded sense of what's important and they are the sensible ones and you are the irrational ones presumably you've noticed that you li you've lived through that how do you explain that tension and do you think the other feminists who are now making these kind of noises are becoming a bit of a lost cause or can they put be pulled back to understand the, this issue in a bit more clarity i just feel i don't see how you can win the race if you don't head to the finish line and i, <laughs> I really do think that these women are trying to keep the status quo. And for me, that's not good enough. Mm. Uh, this all started with the GRA in 2004. And from that, from the inception of actually putting into law that men can legally change their sex to women or women to men, uh, that is the beginning of what we see now, as far as I'm concerned. I don't think that the cultural and social changes would have happened without some sort of legal foundation. As far as what they're doing, I think regular, normal women that uh, don't associate themselves with feminism at all, I don't think they are particularly moved by theoretical arguments as to why women should have rights. Mm. I think women who get their hands dirty on a daily basis doing an, a real job, I think they're interested in whether or not Mrs. H, who they go and see on a Thursday, is safe in her own home and that a bloke isn't going to come in who calls himself a woman and in take intimate care of that woman. Um, and so for those women, for women doing real things, I think this is a very real issue, and it's not some lofty theoretical nicety that they have a choice whether or not they adhere to or not. So I think it really comes from, and it's very interesting because a lot of these women on the left talk for working-class women yeah. all the time but not to them. Mm. and I. I just think that working class women and vulnerable women are not a prop to make an argument 
against people you don't like very much. Mm. I think they are people to consider most centrally in most everything we do. Because look, let's face it, if I don't want to, I probably don't have to get into any situation where I'm actually going to be challenged by a bloke in a woman's space. I don't have to do that. I don't, I don't work. Um, you know, I, I live quite a, a, a free life. Um, no one has great expectations of me and I don't have to sign a dotted line in order to keep the house over my head. That is not the same for most women. And I, I just, I mean, I've had, we do speakers corner events, right? Reformers tree. And we meet them and we, we allow women to tell whatever story they want about their lives and, and a range of issues. And we get women there who are survivors of rape, who then can't access violence against women or rape crisis centers because they can't be sure that it's staffed by women. So they, if, if those women aren't the ones that I'm holding central to everything that I do, then I think that, that what I'm doing is, is not particularly important. That's very well put. And I wanted to ask you specifically about, to begin with, the, the, the more extreme cases of women's spaces that are being potentially invaded by men, or in some cases, actually uh, having men inside them. Mm. And those extreme cases are, as you've mentioned, rape crisis centers, domestic violence shelters, uh, prisons, women's prisons, where we can all agree these are places that house probably the most vulnerable women in the country, women who really need help, including prisons. Lots of women end up in prison out of desperation rather than some huge, massive criminal intent. Mm. So these are places that house vulnerable women. And yet the argument comes up from sections of the left that these places need to be open to all women, by which they mean men as well. So if you think about the Edinburgh rape crisis centres, for example, where it has been openly argued that men should be allowed in, men who identify as women should be allowed to use these centres. And if a rape victim, an actual female rape victim, complains about this, then their bigotry will be confronted, they will be called out, they will be challenged. And just think about the message that that sends to vulnerable women, as you've just mentioned, who may need these services, but fear, A, that there will be a man inside that building, and B, that they will be lectured to by some feminist with a PhD about their bigotry. So how dangerous do you think this could potentially become in relation to helping women who are at their lowest ebb or who've suffered violence and really need that kind of assistance? It's just so scandalous, isn't it? Edinburgh Rape, uh, Rape Crisis Centre, as you rightly say, is completely, it's been parasitically invaded by a man uh, who now is their CEO. And he's on the record of saying that when he came to this country, he was, um, it was all different in India where he came from. Well, India had a third sex or third gender, I think they called it, that you could become a third gender. That was recent. That was after he'd left India. So he came to this country as a man. He's legally recognized as male. And he applied for a job um, at the Edinburgh Rape Crisis Center without ever telling anyone that he was actually male. Uh, and now he heads it up. And now his policies are stretched through. I mean, look, if you're working in those centers and you're working with somebody who calls himself a woman, how are you ever going to have a conversation about keeping men out of those spaces? 
It's just, you just can't. Um, I mean, I blame him, but I also blame the women that let him in. I mean, mm. what, what the hell is wrong with them? What the hell did these, like the feminists of old, I've interviewed Erin um, um, Pitsy for uh, starting the first domestic violence shelters. And I'm sure you know her history mm-hmm. that she really did turn her back on feminism and, and um, had lots to say about the domestic violence sector. And I think she's a, an incredibly valuable woman who's also been erased from the domestic violence movement, which is atrocious. But can you imagine the blood, sweat and tears of, of women mm-hmm. in the 70s and 80s who got these things off the ground and then just watching it just be given up? It, I just, I don't really understand it. For a woman traumatized who, I've never been sexually assaulted, so I have no idea of the trauma and the guilt and the shame and everything else that goes alongside that. But if I couldn't go to somewhere that was supposed to be for me and my trauma without fearing that there's a man inside or I'm going to be told off for thinking that women don't have penises, then I don't think I'd bother going along either. So I think some serious questions have got to be asked, but it's all over the country. It's not just Edinburgh. Over the past year or so, there have been some flashpoint issues, which I think have really shocked people. And I I always measure this by thinking about um, friends and family of mine who don't particularly follow politics very much and read the newspapers occasionally, but aren't really particularly interested in what is in them. And when they start talking about an issue, then I know it's become an issue. So, for example, one thing that people have raised with me is recent stories about uh, male rapists, well, just rapists, men who rape women, um, potentially being recorded as females if that's how they identify. So the police and the courts uh, basically saying that um they should be referred to as women. Their crimes should be recorded as having been committed by a woman. They should be referred to as she in in court, which potentially means that a rape victim will have to refer to her rapist as a female. Um, and that's an issue over which I've had messages from people who are not particularly interested in um, political or social affairs saying, what is going on here? This is absolutely crazy. And it is crazy, and I wanted to ask you about it specifically, uh, but I think the key point here, surely, which touches upon something you said earlier, that this is the logical conclusion of the whole starting point of this discussion. So this goes back to the reasons you give for not using female pronouns or for not accepting that, you, you know, the the fashionable young man who identifies as a woman and has lots of Twitter followers and does modeling for magazines. I'm not going to name any names, but those kinds of people, if you accept that they are literally women, then you have to accept that the man who is a horrible, brutal rapist is literally a woman too, if he identifies as such. So isn't this, even where people say, oh my God, this has gone too far. Isn't the point that actually this is the perfectly logical conclusion to the entire process that's been taking place? 100%. Uh, this is a dogmatic kind of quasi-religious movement. And so you can't, you can't question any of it. You can't say that any of it is ridiculous, nonsensical, uh, dishonest, <laughs> untrue. You can't say any of those things because once you admit some of it is false. 
then you have to admit the whole thing is just built upon the sand and is just nonsense. I think even even worse, like it, it's terrible that we have rapists being recorded as female. Um, it's terrible that the police have been totally politic- politicized and captured. Uh, it doesn't make me have any uh, faith in our law at all. It makes me think that if I can be... I mean, you know, I've been interviewed under caution twice and arrested uh, for my views and my activities. So I'm well aware that the police have got a lot of time <laughs> to waste on women with naughty opinions. Um, so I, I don't really understand when the police went wrong. Maybe it was when they called themselves a service and not a force. You mentioned there and this is something I wanted to touch upon, you've mentioned there that you've been interviewed under caution, which is, I mean, even saying that still makes me think, what the hell is going on in this country? Um, because of your views, because of your protesting, your uh, uh, points of view, or your your uh, acknowledgement of biological reality, one might say. Um, you've also just mentioned there that it's very difficult to talk about this issue. You Anyone who does raise difficult questions or a, a different perspective is instantly denounced as transphobic, a bigot, um, a fascist, uh, scum of the earth, shut this bitch up. I mean, really horrific stuff You, I see all the time. And I just wanted to ask you, how do you deal with that kind of stuff? Because you get it probably more than anyone else, particularly the utterly despicable way in which people will try to say not only that you're a transphobic bigger, but you must also be a racist. You must also be a white supremacist. You must also have all these other um, ideological hatreds that they think are terrible too. Uh, how do you deal with that? And I, have you ever been tempted to push back against people, whether legally or in some other form? Because it is, it does surely become quite intensive. Yeah, well, look, I can take I can take people on the other side saying whatever they like about me because I know I'm right. And so I have the certainty of being absolutely honest in everything that I do. And so I I don't really it kind of makes me think when these people say that about me on the opposite side that I'm totally winning and they'll use anything to try and shut me up. So that's fine. And and also I think when they say these things about me, it means that somebody else is going to talk about me. Somebody else is going to find out about the things that I might be saying and will most likely agree with me. So I am quite confident about that. Um, I say frequently on my own YouTube that I never lose and I, I really never lose. <laughs> so it's not going to happen this time. When it comes to anybody I've remotely even considered getting sort of lawyers in is some of the things that have been said repeatedly by people on my side, mm. <laughs> like where I get my funding from. The suggestion routinely is that it's from the Christian right. You know, I, I'll facilitate them with my bank account if they if they'd uh, like to pay some money in. Uh, but as yet, the religious <laughs> right have been very uncharitable when it comes to donating any money to me. So it's little things like that that just get repeated frequently and so much that it suddenly uh, just becomes accepted that these are the things that I've done that I was paid for by the Heritage Foundation to go to America to harass a uh, so-called trans woman at work when the truth of it was I paid for <laughs> to I paid to go to America and I just happened to come across a man hmm. who is now a senator 
who had just finished a meeting with a Kennedy um, in which parents of four and five-year-olds talked about transitioning their children. And I simply asked this guy some questions in capital. So those are the only things. But quite frankly, if, if I'm being talked about, I, I really do think that there is a possibility that someone will actually engage with the argument and will end up being on my side. So on the issue of people being silenced, people being demonized, um, the difficulty in speaking out on this topic. I want to ask you about JK Rowling and um, the extraordinary demonization of her that has taken place. And of course, one of your products is uh, t-shirts and stickers saying, I heart JK Rowling, which unbelievably have also caused an enormous amount of controversy. The poster saying, I heart JK Rowling has been taken down. People say it's offensive and etc etc and i wanted to ask you what impact you think that will have on the public's perception of this issue because on the one hand i think people will say to themselves this is so horrendous that she's been subjected to this despite the fact that everything she says is very reasonable very rational and obviously very concerned simply with women's rights and yet she's been treated in this way. And they might say that's despicable, that's terrible, that raises questions about the trans movement. But of course, there's also the possibility people will think, well, if even someone like her, a former national treasure, arguably the most important cultural figure Britain has produced in the past 20 years, someone who's very wealthy and very famous, if even she can be, in quote marks, cancelled or attempted uh, to be cancelled, then I had better keep my mouth shut because I have no chance in hell. What I mean, it could go either way, couldn't it? What's your perception of how the, the, the J.K. Rowling controversy could play out? I think the beautiful thing she does is, A, she doesn't tweet often. Um, and then when she wrote the essay, she wrote a really full essay explaining her views, which I don't think anybody could read that and think she's hateful at all. I think the people that are already cowards, uh, that might stop them. And I, I do think there's a, there's a huge amount of cowardice. Uh, certainly among other famous people, I just, I'm really quite aghast that none of the grown-ups in the Harry Potter series has, have supported her at all. Um, it makes me, I just lost so much respect. I mean, I didn't have a great deal of respect for people that make their money by pretending to be someone else on screen, but it's just, excruciating to understand that so many people won't speak about it. And I don't think that is always because they're afraid of getting cancelled. And even if they were, like, what do they, what needs to happen before more spe people speak up? Um, but I think what JK Rowling does is she brings to the fore mm. uh, the fact that this movement is deeply misogynist and ultimately hates women and freedom and free speech. I completely agree with that. And you mentioned earlier that you don't like using the word misogynist because it gets overused. And I have the same feeling about that word. And I think lots of isms tend to get overused these days. You know, everything is supposedly racist or Islamophobic or transphobic, of course, or misogynistic. Um, but in this case, it really is. Because if you look at the way in which I mean, firstly, there's the very idea that womanhood is such a flimsy thing that it can be adopted by a man with a click of his fingers, you know, change his hair, maybe get a boob job. There you go. He's a woman. So it, pre it presents this incredibly demeaning view of womanhood, which I think is inherently misogynistic, but also the way in which people like J.K. Rowling and yourself and others 
are, are insulted and abused very often has misogynistic undertones or misogynistic overtones. Mm. So J.K. Rowling is often referred to as an old hag, even though she's not an old Mm. hag. She's obviously threatened with sexual assault, rape, and so on. So to what extent, I mean, and I don't mean this in any conspiratorial way, but to what extent do you think the trans issue has become a cover for people to express a kind of latent misogynistic views that they hold? Or do you just think it's kind of te- gone in that direction? Do you think there are actually misogynists out there who think, oh, this is a good issue on which I can really let loose my hatred for women? I think anyone that thinks it's okay to allow men into women's spaces must dislike women. At the very least, must dislike, discard never having considered what a woman might feel about it. And often even in conversations where I'll say, well, women are uncomfortable, the response will be, well, that trans woman will be uncomfortable in the men's. And that's the end of it for them. You know, that mm. that man, that man that is so distressed that he's willing to give up his penis, which invariably they don't at all anyway, mm. but someone who's willing to give up their most prized possession must be the most tormented person on earth. I think that's the only way I can sort of get into how some men have felt about this issue. But you can't, you just can't discard women if you care about them at all. We're not considered human. I know like a long time ago, feminists were fighting for women to be seen as human. And I'm very much not a feminist. I have some really grave concerns with people that do call themselves feminist and stand under these like big show lights of feminism and do nothing that's remotely feminist, right? So I'm not a feminist, but I just find it so peculiar that we are revisiting this thing that some men simply don't see women as full human beings and therefore they can completely just take away our rights and get us to move up for men that they feel they're quite happy to um, help them exit manhood. Okay. A couple of other issues I wanted to touch on with you. The first is you mentioned earlier on that when you were in the US, this mysteriously funded trip you went on to Washington DC. And I remember talking to you about that trip. We we met while you were while we were both there we did. in New York and we were talking about it. And I remember you telling me some of the horror stories you heard about mm. the parents of young people who were transitioning or who felt pressure to transition and the extraordinary changes young people are now undergoing as a consequence of the idea of transgenderism or the idea that it's cool to be gender fluid. It's cool to be non-binary. It's cool to uh, supposedly change your sex. You know, we're talking about bodily mutilation. We're talking about the taking of hormones and drugs that will have a long lasting impact on an individual we're really talking about people's lives being turned upside down at a, often at a very young age to the end of this really quite ridiculous idea that you can change your sex. So explain a little bit about the impact that you think this ideology is having on young people, especially young women. There are gr- growing numbers of young women who are now 
identifying as male or identifying as non-binary, distancing themselves entirely from the idea of being a woman and from their own bodies with breast binding and other forms of repression of the female body as if it's something horrible and shameful. What kind of impact do you think that's having on young women? And is there anyone in officialdom, who you, do you think, who's able to get a handle on that and kind of slow that process down? I don't know. In America... I mean, we're so lucky to have the NHS, not for the reasons that we're supposed <laughs> to think, but this particular thing that actually it's badly funded, right? So you can't have access to really expensive surgeries. In the United States of America, and you may want to hold your breath, you can get something called nullification surgery. Now, do you know what that is, Brendan? No. So from your torso down... Uh, you can have basically a Barbie effect, whether you're male or female, and just have the necessary pipe work um, to the exterior of your body so that you can urinate and uh, go to the loo. Um, so that will be the, the removal of your belly button, the removal of all your external genitals. Uh, this is a completely depersoning of a human body. Mm. Girls now will have non-binary girls girls that call themselves non-binary that say they're neither sex will have their breasts removed and their nipples removed. So they will just have a one long scar from one underarm to the other. Now, those are not uncommon surgeries. You know, it's not happening everywhere every day, but we do know that in American hospitals that do gender affirmation surgeries, as they're called, or what I like to call mutilation, uh, they are processing these kids real fast. Now, it's not here yet. And I don't know if there is an appetite. I don't, I don't know whether we'll ever get there. But there are certainly surgeons with very sharp knives that can't wait uh, to see if we progress into that absolute butchery of, of kids. If I'm a girl growing up right now, I'm so thankful that I mean, who knew I'd be thankful for to be heading swiftly to 50 in the next couple of years. <laughs> but I'm so lucky. I'm so lucky that I didn't get to see my face every day a mm. hundred times and decide whether, you know, whether I'm good enough on a daily basis. I'm so lucky that we had to like wait two weeks for just one or two good pictures of a 36 camera roll. <laughs> but this sort of narcissism that I think is, is on acid for this generation of children. No wonder some of these girls want to opt out. If they're not going to play the game of kind of heading off to OnlyFans and um, getting totally validated by men who want to pay them to see them, then, you know, what is the alternative? And it's not, it's not even just girls now. There is a rising number of boys. I interviewed a young man. He was 21. I think from deciding he wanted to have his testicles removed to removal was about three months. It really is extraordinary. And I think mutilation is actually, it's a very strong word, but it's a very apt description of some of these procedures that are taking place. And I think one of the things that I wanted to ask you is what you think drives this, because I read recently a very good piece about the trend for young women in the US in particular at the moment to go off to university at the age of 18 or 19, and then they come home after their first term and they've got moustaches and They've bound their breasts and they are starting to have a slightly deeper voice and they've changed their name. And 
and obviously many, many, many parents are deeply concerned about this. Do you think there's an element of hysteria? Is it, is it a kind of a fad that's rushing through a generation and, and the adult society seems incapable of putting a stop to it? Do you think there is this kind of cultural pressure? I mean, I've been watching the, the reboot of Sex in the City and just like that, which is number one, really awful and not, <laughs> not fun at all. But also it has all of these gender storylines. So the new star of it is a, uh, a non-binary comedian who is they and them. She makes fun of Carrie and Miranda and Charlotte for being women. You know, this used to be a show about women. Now it's a show in which you don't even say the word woman. Charlotte's daughter called Rose is transitioning into being rock and everyone is um. using the name rock. So you think to yourself, and I don't believe really, I, I don't think media effects are as strong as people often make out. I don't think people watch TV and suddenly, boom, they transform themselves and become something else. I don't think it's that straightforward. But when you build up this extraordinary amount of cultural validation off the idea that it is really cool and sexy to be non-binary, to be gender fluid, to not just be a boring woman. You know, who wants to be a boring cis woman these days? It's better to be something a bit more dangerous and cool. That surely has an impact on how young people perceive themselves and the potential measures they will take to become something else. Mm. Well, I think actually narrative is a really good way of coercing and manipulating a population. I probably agree with you that if it was just the media doing it, I don't think it would have any massive impact. However, it's everywhere. <laughs> it's mm. everywhere you look. And so these consistent narratives. Now, a transition on the television is not going to go through the 32 corrective surgeries that a girl might need if she decides to cut off uh, her entire forearm to fashion into a pretend penis, uh, cut off a big square of her thigh to repair her arm, maybe suffer necrosis of the thigh, then have to have another skin graft, or the fact that some of the um, outcomes of these surgeries are so bad and not reported that you end up urinating from an orifice where urine actually shouldn't be coming from. So I do think narrative is really important. I don't really understand why the media has taken this so much. But anyway, moving away from the media, what I think about young people especially this generation who are going through these surgeries, is when I was at school, I wanted to work hard to get a good job so I could buy a house and find somebody nice to fall in love with and have a great job and have some children and have some sort of kind of progress through a life which I thought I would like. I don't know what these kids have got to go for. Number one, I frequently heard the word no when I was a kid. Um, I frequently had to abide by rules. If I kicked back at all, I had some authority <laughs> that would basically just hold the line. I don't think these kids have got that. I wonder if this isn't part of them trying to find a boundary because I think we kids with good boundaries and good rules actually are more safe and successful uh, just in life, not necessarily you know, in sort of economic standards, but just have a more successful life. And I wonder if these kids have really suffered from not having any boundaries or anything to aim for. 
like I often like when I talk to my children about rich people I sort of say imagine you were a billionaire what have you got to live for if you've got no purpose then how quickly are you going to go insane and I wonder with this generation of children looking for something most of them aren't religious I'm not remotely religious I'm a gold star atheist uh, I've never believed in God but I do wonder that if these children had something to look for beyond themselves, whether or not their lives would be very, very different. I think that's that's a good point. The, the, the intense focus on the self has got to be destructive. And it's almost like the only site of transformation these days is one's own body. You know, as you said, mm-hmm. in the old days, people sought transformation either through education or work or raising a family or politics or trying to change their community or society. And now the number of young people, the TikTok generation, who are myopically obsessed on themselves, on their body, on exactly where they fit on the gender identity ruler, um, is, I think, such an extraordinary, almost violent narrowing of what people think they can do and what people think they can have an effect on. So I think mm. there's the, the, the shrinking of that idea of being a social being to just being your own body, your own self, I think is going to is no doubt going to have a really destructive impact. A couple more things I want to ask you before we end. Uh, I want to ask you about. We've talked about the misogyny in this movement, which I think is absolutely apparent and possibly getting. I think it will possibly get worse the more that women like you start to make a fuss about this, and the more that it becomes a controversial talking point, I think the more that some people will double down in their real hatred of the idea that women should have their own rights and their own spaces. So that's probably going to intensify in the short term. But then let's also, I want to ask you about the the homophobia that seems to lurk behind some of this movement too. And particularly in relation to lesbians, particularly in relation to young lesbians, who are increasingly told that it is a fetish to only be attracted to other women, you know, in the same mm. way that lesbians decades and decades ago were called perverts. Increasingly these days, uh, young lesbians will be called weirdos and freaks if they only want to get with women, actual women. But also there is a trend that the BBC recently tried to cover, which is supposed trans women, i.e. men, pressuring lesbians into having sexual relations with them or whatever else it might be, and that kind of sexual pressure. And of course, not surprisingly at all, the BBC was completely hounded for covering this topic, was huge petitions telling them to take the article down and so on. What do you think is the prospects for young gay people, lesbians, young gay kids, in this climate in which we are told that a man can be a woman, you can be a man with a vulva, you can be a woman with a penis. Surely that creates an, an extraordinarily confusing situation for people who are discovering their sexuality. I think when it comes to lesbians, and I've pondered this often, so these men want to be validated. Uh, and so the best validation surely is to be recognized by a woman, by another woman who then finds you sexually attractive. And so I understand that that. I understand the motivation. I mean, it's grotesque, but I understand the motivation. But I think the the wider thing also is why nobody cares, Mm. why nobody cares about these young girls. And I think it's because, as I found out over the last couple of weeks, talking to some men in the media, 
that because if you're not playing the game, if you're not playing the feminine game, then you can be un you know you can be unpersoned. You can be unpersoned as a woman anyway because you're not you're a non man. But it's really striking that women who are who are considered masculine who do make choices to not play the feminine game and who are just uh, more I hate using the word even masculine. But anyway, so they're sort of not seen as feminine women. And I think that therefore they have no use to some yeah. of these men. And most of most women don't have a use for some of these men anyway. But th- in particular, these women don't. And I think that's why they don't care. It's just the same thing. It's the same reason as we are recording some of these rapists as female and we're letting them into other places that if we admit that there is a Me Too moment for lesbians who are being pressured into sex by these men. And there's also gay, young gay men that are going out with and having sex with girls who call themselves boys. So there is a boxer and a cotton ceiling, which are sort of ways to break through someone's underpants who doesn't want to have sex with you because they don't fit your sexuality or you don't fit theirs, rather. I just think it's it's extra misogyny, isn't it, when it comes to lesbians because lesbians don't have too much use for most men. <laughs> and I'd listened, to, I'd listened to a comedian the other day who let it slip, and he was joking, but he wasn't joking. And he basically said the difference between a trans woman, I will put in inverted, com- inverted commas, and a woman, uh, one that passes and one that doesn't, is whether or not you want to sleep with them. Mm-hmm. And I just thought, well, you may not have ad- wanted to admit mm-hmm. That, but I think that is true for many, many men. Mm. That you know, if a if a man has enough uh, alterations to look possible to um, have sex with, then that's good enough. They can, they deserve the pronouns. <laughs> yeah, that's very well put. Okay, Kelly J, my last question for you is on freedom of speech. We've touched on this already. The difficulty of talking about these topics. You are someone whose freedom of speech has been attacked many times. Your trigonometry interview was taken down from YouTube because it was hate speech, because obviously you're clearly a very hateful person. You've been, as you say, interviewed under caution. I think you've been banned from certain social media sites. I know you get warnings on Instagram all the time. No doubt Mm -hmm. there are misogynists out there mass reporting you every day, trying to silence your voice. How important do you think freedom of speech is to this particular campaign that you're talking that you're involved in because it seems to me that without freedom of speech which goes for so many campaigns actually in the modern era you just don't have a hope in hell of being able to affect the kind of changes that you want to so how how would you explain the importance of freedom of speech and of allowing women to talk about women's issues well i find it really interesting that the freedom of speech movement is is overpopulated by men who quite frankly i can't imagine their their speech is too prohibited to be honest and there is a lack of recognition i sound like a whiny woman i really <laughs> promise i'm not a whiny woman i these things are just difficult to ignore so mostly men sort of see freedom of speech as like everybody's issue and it totally is but for women we can't say what we are 
Like that's how stifled our speech is. I can't even say man and woman. Well, I can and I do. But there are many women that don't even feel that they can say a woman's toilet is just for women uh, or that a woman is an adult human female. And so I think freedom of speech is really important. I'd like to see more women in this argument actually stand for free speech. And I do appreciate it's difficult. And I appreciate it's difficult because I'm sure many of us talk about how brilliant free speech is until we come across some ideas that we don't like. Mm. And then I'm sure we'd like to stifle free speech. But it's at those moments that you really test your principles. And for me, I hope I've always held the principle of free speech, but maybe it's not been tested to its full <laughs> extent. <laughs> but um, I remember sort of the flashpoints with like Count Dankula and I just, I really don't understand people that watch world news, that watch what's going on in in Hong Kong, in Afghanistan, um, in many countries across the world that don't have freedom of speech and think that that is totally unrelated to what is happening here. And also people talk about freedom of speech as in power structures, and I think that's a nonsense. I think the people at the bottom of the pile are those that need the greatest access to speech and being able to listen to and speak about their ideas. Uh, because without that, we totally leave those people out of the conversation. And that's, that's insane. It's not just for the privileged to be able to talk about what we want to talk about. It's got to be for the people right at the bottom of society. Kelly J, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to The Brendan O'Neill Show. We'll be back with another guest and more discussion. Don't forget to subscribe. And in the meantime, keep reading Spiked at www.spiked-online.com.